everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin, author of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter, here with Andrew Vance, host of the Choose the Hard Way podcast. This is our third edition of our super special Tour de France edition collaboration. We just watched stage five at the tour, the Paris-Roubaix cobblestone stage that um, threw up a pretty surprising, it was a stressful day. I think we both were texting, we don't know what's going on, what's going on, where is everybody, who is where. Uh, really, really uh, kind of fantastic victory from Simon Clark out of the breakaway. We can talk about how that formed and why that was a good move to get into it in the first place. Primoz Roglic and Ben O'Connor were the GC riders to lose a bunch of time. Tadej Pogacar looked amazing, had one of the most impressive rides from a GC contender on the cobblestones I can ever remember. Did not gain that much time, used a lot of energy. We'll talk about if that was a mistake or not. Andrew, what what, what what are your thoughts coming out of this? Your mental, you had a great tweet during the stage about how you have to put, you do a mental Normatech after, or a brain Normatech after each stage. And, you know, since you've just come out of that, how, how are you feeling about it? Yeah, I like to start with a cold plunge, then a brain Normatech. And coming out of the, the Caleb Ewan hay bale rodeo, today's stage visually read as chaos and I think it will be interesting to see what emerges once the dust settles. The dust is probably settled along the course, but I think in the next 24 hours, we're going to learn a, a lot more about what happened within the race. Honestly, I found the race to be incredibly difficult to follow today. It was very exciting to watch equally the manner in which it was being presented on the streaming service made it really difficult to understand what was going on inside of the race. I mean, you kind of caught the major notes. Um, and also, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on what actually happened. Uh, Pojakar, of course, dominant. You know, just yesterday, people were talking about Wild Man Art being on the same level as Eddie Merckx and an incredible once-in-a-generation writer. I mean, I have we've talked about could Wout be a Tour de France winner, I today I'm thinking Pojakar, once in a generation writer, perhaps on the same level as Eddie Merckx, working at the same problem set from the other end of the spectrum. What could Pojakar do in all other races if he weren't so focused on being a Tour de France winner? So that's one question that I have coming out of today. Like, what else can this guy do? What will he we see him do? And also, you know, I want to get into the mystery of Tade Pojakar today a bit, Spencer. I would love to hear more from Tade directly. And I know that we're in an age of disintermediation where writers are communicating directly to fans and to the public through Twitter, Instagram, other channels. Teams are doing the same. But I was reflecting on this over the past few days. We really don't hear anything from Tade ever. He's never interviewed. The team doesn't really put out media with him. They did put out a goof parody video and Yumbo Visma did the same thing with Wild Van Art to kind of humanize these robo robo uh, athletes. But yeah, who is this guy? Who is yeah, he? I, I, <laughs> I don't know if like, I want to know anything about him. I like that I don't know anything. You say that he's focused on the tour. I should note he's won two monuments so far. And Strada Bianchi, you know, I think I actually overlaid his results at the same 
age as Eddie Merckx is, and he's pretty much equal to Merckx, if not slightly ahead. So it's not crazy to say that he's the best rider since Eddie Merckx. Obviously, Merckx kept that dominance for like 10 years. That's kind of the trick of being an amazing rider. You know, I thought he could win every monument, which is very, very difficult to do, but Roubaix might be like the, the tough one. After today, I, I do wonder if he could win Pei Roubaix. He looked incredible on the cobblestones. Let's not forget Van Aert, though. I mean, Pogaccio looked amazing. Van Aert might have had the ride of the day. I mean, he saved Jonas Vindegaard's tour. He retained yellow, despite not trying to retain yellow. He pretty much pulled the Vindegaard-Thomas chase group for the last 40 kilometers by himself, uh, reconnected the GC groups, and then limited Pogaccio's gains to 13 seconds. I, I mean, that's really, 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 really impressive. And even though Pogaccio looked amazing, I mean, he only gains 13 seconds and he used a ton of energy, like a lot, a lot more than everyone in that chase group. So because of WoW, we're now left with the question of Pogaccio looked awesome, got time. Was it worth it? I mean, you, there's two school of thoughts. You could say, well, any time is time. Take the time. Always take the time. It's a race where you're trying to get to the finish line in Paris faster than any someone else. So time is good. But... You know, if you've gained that 13 seconds at the expense of, you know, an extra, I don't know, I'm just making it up, 1,000 kilojoules of energy, how's that going to feel on Friday when they have their first summit finish? So I, I thought Wout was amazing. And I, I cannot believe he's in yellow. And if you watched him, he pulled off with like 1.8K to go. And Vindegaard said, thank you. And then Wout, it looked like he was going to get dropped. And then he's just back on the front. And I think I wonder if he realized like, oh, crap, I can actually pull this back and retain yellow. I should do that. That would be fun. Wouldn't that be interesting? So, you know, I, I'm still in awe of Van Aert, even, even though he didn't win in, you know, in the shadow of his amazing victory yesterday with this. I would almost say today's performance was even more impressive in some ways. Yeah, Spencer, I think you make a great point. And if we start doing some kilojoule calculus here, you're right. Potentially, Tade Burnmore being up there, being in the front and trying to put some time into his rivals equally. I mean, Wout was doing what he had to do as in his role, kind of as a super domestic today. Slash, he did manage to retain the yellow jersey, which is incredible. But I almost wonder, did Tade have... He did, he did what he could do from a performance point of view, which no other rider could match. So it's unlikely this was his strategy. But being in the front and being in the position that he was in could have been the lower risk and lower energy expenditure strategy. Like having clean road, not having to eat as much dust as other people were who were farther back riding among the the race caravan, uh, the vehicles, the other riders, just the dust level looked insane today. I did a quick PubMed search to see if I could find any research about the impact of, uh, of dust on energy output on wattage amongst cyclists. Unfortunately, I couldn't find anything, just long-term studies on pollution. But anybody who's ridden in a dust cloud, uh, you know, in a mass start mountain bike race, or perhaps even in a gravel race, Spirit of Gravel Spencer, you know that it uh, it really can impede your ability to perform. And also on subsequent days, you're just hacking up dust for quite a while afterwards. That dust kind of becomes muddy uh, over time. 
But what do you think? Do you think who had the lower energy expenditure strategy? Well, I think Pagachar. I think you're correct in terms of the breakaway. That's why they won because they were just out there cruising. I mean, it's so much easier in the break. You can see the road. That's important. Like when you're in the Peloton on cobblestones, you can't see what's in front of you. It makes it really difficult. The breakaway is so much easier. With Pogacar, though, he was in the group. He was like eating dust all day. And then he responds to Stoyven's late attack. You know, and maybe I could I could go along with your logic if he would have sat on. But instead of sitting on, he gets to the front and Stoyven's sitting on him. Stoyven, who wants his only aim is to win the stage. Like he doesn't care about time gaps. Like he just should have been sitting on Jasper Stoyven. If they go to the finish, that's awesome. That's all gravy. It's a bonus. But I think it was a mistake to then get on the front and just let Jasper, Jasper Stoyven get a free ride to try to win the stage while you do all the work for him. I don't know. I think he just used, and that was an intense like 10K of racing where, you know, it's not easy. It wasn't easy for Vlasov, but Vlasov just had two teammates in front of him sitting in the group behind, you know, so he's not even eating that much dust because at that point, the front group had been whittled or the GC group had been whittled down so much that it probably wasn't that difficult to ride in it versus versus Pogacar in front. You know, I mean, relative to Vindegaard, he probably did put out less energy because Vindegaard had to chase back on. Uh, you know, you would never recommend to flat. Um, did you watch, did you see this bike change? That was a disaster from, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was like a clown car had been unpacked and no offense to clowns out there. We appreciate your efforts and entertainment, but yeah, it was like a, <clears throat> it was like a clown car at a circus. That was wild. I couldn't believe they must have some sort of protocol or some drill and they just lost their minds. I mean, the first bike he got was way too big. He couldn't reach the pedals and, <laughs> and all chaos broke loose. It seemed like they each changed bike three times and then the team car finally found him. I mean, it's probably uncomfortable just sitting, waiting for the team car. I think he probably should have waited for Steven, Steven Kreuzweg to give him a bike that fit and then try to change the bike later. But that was, I mean, it was not a good day for, the end result was okay for Yumbo, but midway through the stage, it was not a good day for Yumbo. Um, Pagachar, we could talk about, he was awesome, really impressive. He had no teammates with him. I was surprised by that. Like they keep throwing money at this team and it doesn't seem like the performance gets any better. If anything, I would wonder if his 2020 team was stronger than this team which is somewhat staggering considering how hard they've worked to build a really strong team around him in the off seasons. So, you know, you could, you know, I, I was just like shocked that Yumbo, this strong, strong team was like melting down while Tadej Pogacar, a solo, basically riding, he rides the Tour de France unattached, essentially could just sit second or third wheel behind classic specialists. And then Mark moves and then like goof around and pull and then get 13 seconds. Uh, you know, maybe, as I said, maybe he made a mistake and burned extra energy, but at the same time, maybe he was just, this is just fun for him. And it's like, yeah, whatever. I, I did a little bit extra work, but I, I don't care. What do I care? I'm up front. I'm out of trouble. Bring on Friday. Bring on like one of the toughest summit finishes in the race. I mean, how, how did you read? Like, do you think he's stressing at all that his team stinks? I've been reflecting on this a lot. And I also was thinking about it in the context of, yesterday's stage which i know we're going to talk about where <laughs> wow van art decimated the entire peloton and shelled his team and then there was that questionable moment which i want to dig into about 
whether it would have made sense for Vinyagard to try to go with Wout or whether that would have scuttled the attack, knowing that Vinyagard could have put time into GC rivals had he been able to hang with Wout. But with the rider, whether the rider is Wout or Pojakar, I guess those are the two riders that really jump out. I've really started to reflect on whether in the new era of cycling, when we have super athletes like Pojakar, Wout, I know MVDP was not on today and you know might be suffering from back injuries or just exhaustion after the season that he's had so far. But what is the role of the team now, Spencer? And do these GC riders or rider, even riders that are going for stages, when they have this level of talent, what is the role of the team and how is the team best utilized? And does the team matter when you're an Eddie Merckx level generational talent? Uh, yeah, the team does matter specifically because of yesterday. Like if they went through a town before that climb, it was a really sharp left turn. Like Garrett Thomas, um, who's like, that's a trap stage for him. He was in perfect position. Same thing with Adam Yates. He might struggle on a stage like that. Like Ineos worked so hard to keep them at the front. So they got up and over that climb, really no problems. Got to the, the day, no problems. Same thing with today. I mean, Thomas was in trouble and he had the pair Roubaix winner this year, Dylan Van Barl, pulling him along. Pogacar yesterday, he was, it was a little dicey for him. I mean, he was like 50th going into that climb. He missed the move. Vindegaard and Yates got out in front of him. You know, what if they stay with Van Aert? That's not a great situation. So I think the team is, it, it is important. Obviously, like the rider is important, but it's these like medium hard days where the team is really, really important to keep you up front and so to keep you from getting caught out, especially in crosswinds. I mean, we saw the one time he's ever lost time in the tour is in crosswinds because probably the team wasn't strong enough, you know, and that that's still a looming issue and we saw him almost crash two days in a row because his team's not strong enough didn't didn't have him at the front you know if he goes down loses 50 seconds on stage two like you know i guess that wouldn't have counted but stage three he could have lost serious time if he just would have been a bike position back so you know i, I think the team does the team doesn't matter as much on super hard days as people think but on the not hard days, they're actually really, really important. But I mean, even think of back at the at the Giro with Jai Hindley, where he has Leonard Kamna to drop back right when he wants to attack Carapaz. If Kamna's not there and can't lift the pace, does Carapaz crack? You know, maybe. But I think that it did help in that respect. So the team, the team is still important. Um, but yeah, this podcast comes full circle because remember we were talking about Vanderpool. Why is he on off the front on these mount stages at the zero? Like, what is he doing? And then I think we saw today that he's like directly paying for those efforts. You know, he didn't have a good spring. He basically didn't train that much before his Milano San Remo performance, which was really good. He had a good zero. I just think he doesn't have the spring base that you'd need to do a zero tour back to back. Especially, I think the zero was the first Grand Tour he ever finished, and now he's doing the tour. I think the tank is just empty on him but it's funny i think it's almost directly related to the befuddlement we had about why he was off the front on multiple mountain stages at the zero yeah it made no sense he was just it felt like at the time we were speculating that he was training for the tour or for some future race here we are now in the tour and he's shelved 
I mean, seeing him ride today, maybe he'll recover, but we are about to enter into, you know, heading into the weekend. It's going to be an incredibly difficult stretch. And what do you think? Are we going to see MVDP get to the finish of this tour, Spencer? No, I had a little birdie tell me, abandon in the next few days. You know, tomorrow is on paper a good day for him. You know, if that goes poorly, I think Friday is maybe he gets off the bike. You know, I Saturday on paper, another okay day for him. But if he's, you don't get better during the tour. I mean, if you're not, you have to be like as fit as you've ever been in your life on the first day of the tour to survive the tour. If you're off your game, you just, it's like, it's like being in quicksand, which apparently doesn't exist. We've been lied to, but if it did exist, it's like you're just sinking. I mean, you can't get out of it. So I don't think we see him finish this race. Quicksand doesn't exist. Say I don't, I don't want to like spread false information. I've just heard that that's something that, like, in our generation growing up, was, was thought about a lot, perhaps. Was it portrayed in media? And then I don't think it actually occurs. I think we got most of our ideas about quicksand from Scooby-Doo and related cartoons. So it's entirely possible that disinformation plagued our generation. I even wonder if bringing up quicksand now, if we might get a warning label on the podcast on Spotify. Um, Hopefully not. But yeah, getting back to the to the race, Spencer, what do you think was the crux moment in this stage today, the turning point when things could have gone one way and instead turned into what we saw? I did notice, I watched this from like the flag drop. I saw Magnus Cord off the front. I was thinking, that's kind of like, I was even thinking this yesterday, like it's kind of weird. Like he's a world-class rider. Like why is he in the break every day? Like that's something that if I was in the tour, I, that would be my job. Just like, hey, you, we know you can't do anything. So just get in these early breakaways. And, you know, he use it up there again today. And I'm thinking, like, that's kind of weird. And then I see Nielsen Palace coming out of the Peloton to bridge up to him. And, you know, that was it didn't work out for EF. But I thought that was like really, really key. And that it gave the breakaway. Having Palace is a really strong rider. So is Court. Having those two guys up there, you just let it roll. Because, you know, they thought they could get yellow, maybe even win a stage. And it was like EF's strategy kind of finally made sense to me of like, oh, like they got the KOM jersey with Court. They could, Even though they missed the yellow jersey on day one, they kept themselves in the conversation. And, you know, with Palace being so close and like, oh, wow, they're going to have yellow, a stage win, and the KOM jersey. You know, this is like EF's actually played this opening week perfectly. It didn't work out, but I thought that was a really, you know, that could have been like the defining moment of the stage, but it didn't work out for EF, but it worked out for Simon Clark, who I mean, perhaps I actually, I'll have to go back and watch. He might've been with Clark and he might've bridged up with Palace, but you know, technically that was the race when he moved and it happened on paved roads long before we ever got to the cobblestones. So I thought that was just really savvy, kind of ballsy too, because it's a super short stage. So you think, well, we can't build up enough of a gap to hold off the Peloton, but it also means you don't have to be in the breakaway that long. I mean, it was a three hour stage. Like that's, you know, that's like the length of an amateur race in the, in the U S so you can win from the breakaway. I thought that I was just thought that was really savvy. I was surprised more riders actually didn't try to get into that move especially because the Peloton really backed off once that break was up the road. I mean, what did you, like, what, what stuck out most to you during the stage? Like, is like the defining moment. 
Yeah, I'll take things in a different direction, Spencer, but I actually thought the moment that Caleb Ewan hit the hay bale and did the hay bale volt was a really critical moment in this stage. And he just looked like he he was really strong today. And it was, you know, tough to tell what would have happened had he not gone over the hay bale and had a really rough dismount. But I I have to wonder what might have happened had he managed to stay upright and had continued in the stage because he seemed to be riding incredibly strong and I think we might have seen a different result. Yeah, at the time I thought, you know, right before that hay bale incident, we'll talk about that too. I just, I thought, wow, he could win the stage. He's the fastest guy in this group. He looks strong. If he hasn't been dropped yet, he might make it to the finish. And then I guess knowing what we know now, they, may, they probably wouldn't have had the firepower to pull back that breakaway anyway. But at the right. time, I thought, wow, Caleb Ewan's going to win the stage. That's going to be pretty surprising. Um, like I guess like a motorbike pulled a hay bale into the road, and it you know like drastically shaped the race where Roglic went down. I think Jack Haig went down, and Caleb Ewan, who was like a potential stage winner. You could say there was a lot of like talk before the stage, like do cobbles belong in race in like road racing? This is stupid. They shouldn't be in the tour. The stage is going to ruin the race because someone's going to crash. Someone crashed, but it was on a paved section on a roundabout because of a motorbike. I mean, this could have happened at any point. It might seem really stupid, but the tour is kind of stupid if you think about it. Like, do you remember it was one of the Yates brothers? Maybe Adam Yates was going to win a stage and the kilometer to go banner deflated and hit him. So, I mean, the tour is just... It's an absurd race with like lots of silly things happen. So as frustrating as this is, and it does suck to see Roglic lose time, probably out of the GC. He's over two. He lost over two minutes to Pogacar and looked hurt. So I don't feel fantastic about Roglic's chances. Chances now, it's kind of part and parcel of the of the tour. I mean, this stuff just happens. Weird weird crashes happen. Yeah, and I know that when Ewan went down that on the broadcast, they said that Roglic had gone down. I, I didn't see him actually go down in that incident. Is it confirmed that he did wreck in that incident or did he have a separate Radio crash? Tour said he went down in that incident. I watched, they like showed a quick replay on TV. You can see Laporte next to him in the group who was like his minder. Laporte seems to get through and then someone went down with Ewan. So it, it's possible it was Roglic. I tend to think it was because then he was he was kind of struggling at the same exact same time that Ewan was down. Yeah, and if that's the case, we we covered this on the last episode, but it's not a grand tour until Primos Roglic has gone to the ground and um, his buttocks have been exposed, unfortunately, due to road rash. And it's really unfortunate. I really would love to see a full strength Roglic go head to head. Uh, with Pojakar, as I'm sure you would, and the rest of cycling fans out there. But it seems at this point that the GC leadership of Yumbo Visma is now decided. Yeah, or is, or is it? Well, I think you're the music guy. What did the Counting Crows say? You don't know what it's got till it's gone? Or is that Joni Mitchell? Is that someone wrote that song? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'm the Counting Crows music <laughs> guy, but. Maybe you are. Maybe that's it's more of a Kansas thing, not a Missouri thing. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the reason. Um, not because I grew up in the middle of nowhere and that like we only had cassette tapes to listen to. But that's like it made me think like 2020, you know, that might be the only clean run we get of these two riders going at each other at the tour. And 
if you think like Roglic's second place was seen as such a failure and like a disaster, it's looking like he's never going to top that second. So it does make you remember that you have to be like appreciative of when you do get two riders like getting a clean shot at each other and even getting second, if that's disappointing, could be the best you'll ever finish. So, you know, I was just thinking about that after the race, like, man, like, I don't know if I just don't like, we've seen this before. He crashed. He might probably might not make it to the race. He's probably going to go win the Vuelta. Like that's exciting. Maybe Pogacar will go to the, the Vuelta and that would be cool. But you know, I just, there's a certain point where it's not a mistake. You know, it's like not mistakes anymore. Um, we saw Pogacar go down, almost go down two times in a row. And I was thinking, well, if that was Roglic, she would have crashed. And I think the reverse is true today. If, if Pogacar's in the same position, he essentially was in the same position, he doesn't crash. So, you know, Primo's is just missing that like little bit of bike handling you need to navigate these early stages. He needs to get out the F1 tap lights oh, and do some work when he's riding the train. Absolutely. Right. right? And there, did you catch, sorry, Spencer, did you catch Wout avoiding oh my God. riding into the car? Yeah, the that was today? crazy. Whoa. And I was thinking yesterday, I saw someone coming back on, like, you know, they sit right on those cars. And I was thinking like, man, if that car slows down, like that'd be a disaster. And then that's exactly what almost happened today. I mean, that was really dicey. And we also saw Peter Sagan crash. I mean, that should tell us how crazy this stage was that Sagan and Van Art, probably two of the best bike handlers in the race, both crash. And Sagan's was like, you know, they were just going through a corner and he slid out. You know, that's that's like something that would happen in like an amateur race. So it just shows you how on the limit these guys were. Like Van Art, he was just distra- he was just distracted on that wheel of the car and then crashed. And when he crashed the first time or when he crashed before he was on the car, he just seemed like he wasn't in the right position. So it shows you how fallible these riders are, which I guess takes us back to your question. Is the GC over? No, because anything could happen to, to Pogacar. You know, there is a like a school of thought that I'm just looking at the GC. Roglic is three minutes back. No, uh, that's the stage. So in the GC, he's probably even a little bit further. I don't know how this works. He's even closer. He's like two and a half. He's two minutes behind Pogacar, essentially. You know, that's not fatal on paper. Um, the fact that he's hurt makes it difficult. It's just hard to ride fast when you're hurt. But, you know, if you remember Ben O'Connor last year, Ben O'Connor lost time today too. He loses time in the first week, but then it frees him up. It, you know, it, it gives you elasticity later in the race where you can get into a breakaway and they'll spot you time because you're further back in the GC and you can take time back in breakaways. It's hard to imagine Primos getting any type of freedom now, but they can't mark everybody. And especially with Pogaccio's team being so bad, you know, if Primos gets into a move, are they going to stop him? If Ben O'Connor gets into a move, are they going to stop him? So, you know, as long as those guys aren't hurt, it's not a disaster at this point. If anything, it just adds more texture to the coming mountain stages. You know, we saw with the Giro, we saw with the 2020 Tour, when there's no, this, you, the team time trial used to play this role where it would break up the race early and it would force riders to be more aggressive as the race went on. It became like in vogue to pack the time trials at the end of the race and keep everyone close together. But the problem is everyone thinks they're the best. So it's like, well, I don't have to attack because I'm going to win the time trial and I'm going to win the race. It's, but 
people don't, they're not honest with themselves of like, no, I'm going to lose a ton of time. Like Miguel Angel Lopez rode the 2020 tour pretty conservatively and then got blown out of the water in the TT. If he had been six minutes down on stage five, he probably would have been more aggressive and more able to pull back time. So, you know, the fact that there was a little bit of separation in the GC today, I think it's just going to be good for like the aggressiveness of the race as we go on. And Spencer, it's wild to look at GC rankings and to see Yates, Pidcock, and Thomas all in the top 10. So Enios, those three riders each separated by a second right now. They only trail Vineyard by eight seconds. And then Pojakar is 20 seconds ahead of Vineyard. So, you know, we're still still very tight. I think this weekend, do you think the race is more or less going to be uh, – over uh that's a good question um i hope not i I do think if we think about like who are the winners of the day gc wise you might say pagachar but if you just think about it from like energy expended versus time vindegaard and thomas and i guess yates you know he said he was really sick with covid which makes me not trust any of these performances you know just if you've ever been sick and then tried to perform athletically it's not a great combination but the fact that thomas got through this unscathed losing 13 seconds to pogachar pogachar is pretty good um you know he, he's flying a bit under the radar here i think he's more relaxed than he normally seems um yesterday we can talk about that in a second you know he kind of didn't participate in the explosion at the front just rides in, doesn't matter, doesn't lose any time. Like, I really like to see that from Garrett Thomas. The fact that he didn't seem really that panicked about being in the second group today behind, or I guess the second GC group, and just gets back on, you know, trusted his team. Um, you could say the same thing about Jonas Vindegaard. Uh, I expected more from Jonas coming in. So I'm like, I was more surprised by Garrett Thomas. I'm not sure what Tom Pickock's doing. I don't quite understand his role at this race. If he's like going for, the white jersey like his he's his whole strategy is Tade Pogacar gets COVID drops out he wins white um I'm not quite sure why he's so high up in the GC it was nice having him with those two GC riders today though you know I think the weekend's actually going to be kind of a stinker I'm just looking at Saturday and Sunday stages I don't expect fireworks I think Friday is going to be concentrated fireworks on the Planche de la Belleville, which is where Tade won the 2022 in that time trial. You know, I, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. I don't think he's going to blow them out of the water there. Um, and what, you know, did you have any thoughts on yesterday's final climb where, you know, he was slower than every, almost every other GC contender on that climb. Like, do you read anything into that? Or do you think that's just him not caring? My read is, you know, I, I was of two minds about this. Like you, I was wondering, hey, his positioning seemed to be off. So strategically, he didn't seem in a great spot heading into the climb. It put him at a disadvantage. He potentially could have lost time had the other GC rivals stayed. Well, in particular, had Jonas stayed with Wout. Equally, I wonder if he's just tranquilo and is just thinking, yeah, this actually doesn't really matter because I'm going to so utterly destroy everyone once we get into later phases of the race and get into the mountains that I don't really care about this 900 meter 
stretch of road. Yeah, no, that's that's a complete possibility. Um, and you're like Jonas looked fantastic, and I, I still think he's very strong. I actually looked at the climbing times. He was slower than Roglic, who he dropped because he started so far back. You know, Yates, I still have no idea what to make of Adam Yates. I don't know what's going on there, how fit he is. He's surprised me so far. You know, Friday, they'll be, Friday's a little bit more of an honest effort. But even on Friday, you know, I'm just looking at it. It's 7K long at essentially 9%. So that's really hard. But, you know, how long is that going to take them? 20 minutes? You know, if you're Garrett Thomas, if you're Jonas Vindegaard, and you just think about that as a math problem, I just have to do 6.8 kilos for, that's that's ridiculous, that's like almost impossible, but I'm simplifying that. I just have to do that effort for 20 minutes, and Tade can't hurt me if I can do that. It doesn't matter what he does. I just have to ride really, really, really hard, which I'm capable of doing for 20 minutes to limit his gains. You know, I don't know, like... I think, you know, we saw him, if you think about last year when he made his big gains, it was on a, a pen, penultimate climb in the rain. I don't think he's going to get that chance early this year. I think he's going to have to take this race later, you know, deeper into the Alps than than he did last year. And that helps Vindegaard, who was actually stronger than him later in the race last year. And another take on Tade's ride yesterday, you know, we're talking about how his team perhaps is not at the level that he actually needs or that would best suit him. Equally, a thought that I had is, is this actually a brilliant strategy? And are he and his team, while they might seem to be out of position, are they actually just conserving energy and not burning matches when they don't have to? Like they're sitting back in the pack. They're not in the battle for position on that 900 meter stretch of road to be there when the wild attack goes. But does that mean that they're going to have more to give when they're in the high mountains and when Tade is really going to be showing and destroying his opponents? I think yes, but it's not on purpose. Because if you were really strategically approaching this, you'd say, where can Tade lose this race? It's this week. He's, he could send him out by himself in the mountains and he's going to be fine. You know, he doesn't really need a team up there. This is where he's vulnerable. But their team is going to be stronger in the mountains. Like, they're all like quality climber riders they don't have a lot of big bodies really you know if you look at like Enios, it's a it's just some big bodies on that team same thing with yumbo ua doesn't have that they were supposed to have mateo trenton but he got covid right before the race um so that's i i if trenton's in this race he's with pagachar this entire week it's probably all looks different um so yeah they they will be stronger later on um, i don't think he'll be this exposed the whole time and do you want to do we feel the, I have strong thoughts about this, but do you want to field the question of if Wout should have waited for Jonas at the top of the climb yesterday? I think the answer is no. I don't think that he should have waited. I think that this is, this also goes back to do any teams believe that they have a realistic chance of going for the overall victory in this race? The feeling that I have right now is, yes, of course, they're going to try to. But I don't actually think that any team has the confidence that they are that they can take the race from Tade. And I think that that's what we saw yesterday. And I think everyone is trying to get whatever they can squeeze out of this race to get maximum marketing exposure, the biggest ROI for their sponsors, the most TV time, 
doing the most spectacular things they can when they can, because they know that in the later phases of the race, they don't have any chance. That's, that's how I read that effort. What did you make of it? Spencer? I mean, I, th- I think it's like the question should be inverted. Like, should they not have gotten dropped? Like that's the only way they survive. If he sits up and he only survived because he pushed so hard over the top and on the descent, if he doesn't do that, I mean, if you notice those two riders got caught a kilometer later, like if he sits up and waits, he loses that the point where he stretched the lead and they all just get pulled back. And, and I mean, there's no way Bora is going to sit back if, if Yates and Vindegaard are up the road without an AG2R, like those guys are just going to pull them back. So no. And let's, let's play that out. Okay. So Yates and Vindegaard are like, hammering on the front with him the chase group's going much harder because there's gc teams at the front i mean what did Wout win by eight seconds let's say that's four seconds with the harder chase i mean what do you really get that's not worth the energy you've expended if you're vindegaard and yates off the front so no i i don't think they would have stayed away it's it looked the gap looks small but if he sits up and waits there they lose the important momentum, and he's just caught similar to where they were caught, I think. But they should have stayed with him. <laughs> don't get dropped. If you don't want Wild to ride away from you, don't get dropped from his wheel would be, would be my point. And how hard, I mean, I mean yeah. it sounds crazy because they're all world-class cyclists, but if they're pulling, like it's not like he could have... If they go to the front, they're going slower than he's going, and the chase group's going to gain time on them that only worked because well it's so fast that he can ride faster than a group of people behind him and yeah i just i don't i don't see like even if the three of them are working together if that they could stay away it would be really tough another thing that jumped out at me about the both that attack and just what unfolded yesterday watching it live and i experienced the same thing today Curious what you think about it, Spencer. I know that everything that we're watching is coming from a main television feed. So the commentators calling the race, they don't have their own director who's calling different shots. So they're just kind of stuff is popping up and they're describing to you what they're seeing as it arrives in front of them. There's no coordination with the director as you would typically see in live coverage of sports events. You know, as someone who follows the sport very closely, I find it to be really difficult to understand what's happening in these critical moments of the race. And sometimes they'll cut back, you'll get some kind of slow-mo, but I think this speaks to some of the opportunities and some of the limits that we're currently seeing with the entire system of professional cycling and the manner in which it's mediated. It's just really difficult to understand what's going on in the race. Even when you know who the riders are, I don't know what you're doing, Spencer, other than looking at it later and playing things back over and over, but trying to guess, you know, hoping for a camera angle where you can see someone's face, you know, which riders and which Jersey following who in the attack, for example, yesterday, like it took me a minute to understand what it actually unfolded. And then of course the commentator's got to that but is someone following the race live i want a little bit more out of what's being presented to me 
it's you, you have to do a lot of work to get to the point where it makes yeah, sense. I guess there's two components here. Like yesterday leading into the climb, I just don't think there was a moto. I think the break was too close to the Peloton. So there was no moto on the front of the Peloton, which is why we didn't see them approach the climb. But then like they're also like, let's say there's four cameras like France TV, whatever the French TV, national French TV station is called, like they're the ones choosing what to show us. And like they were showing like a random guy getting dropped. You're like, we don't need to see this. Like what's going on at the front of the race? The Giro was a major offender of this where like we barely saw the GC group all race because they just the director doesn't show it. Like, shouldn't you just be able to see that? Like the images exist they're recorded like we should just be able to pick which camera we want to see ourselves yeah or it, would, it seems like it would be a good use of split screen putting oh yeah well we don't <laughs> we don't want to get carried away with fancy technologies like <laughs> yeah split. yeah we don't want to we don't want to fast forward to like 1988 uh in terms of the coverage we're going to see and you know one of the things that i saw vodder's tweet about at the end of the race today i think referring to betiol's ride today was he actually re referenced the Netflix series. He was like, oh, this team brief is going to be team debriefing of the stage is going to be really interesting. Something about Netflix. And I had forgotten for a moment. Oh, right. They're doing an F1 style series about the Tour de France. Tade and UAE are not participating in the series. I mean, kind of similar to what we saw in the early days of F1, I think in subsequent seasons, if this actually takes off, we'll see all of the teams participating because the marketing ROI and and uh, brand awareness that's going to drive will be huge for both the teams and the sponsors. But I think once we have that series, whenever it drops in six months, probably we're going to really get the story of what happened at this tour. Unfortunately, we're not getting that while we're watching it, which I think does create a barrier to entry to bringing new people into the sport who want to understand what's going on. And, you know, that's unfortunately, that's all how it always has been in professional cycling. Do you know what he was referring to about Betty Hall today? I think that he was referring to a moment when he was working with. I think that he perhaps was pulling for a Pojakar. Interesting. Now I want to yeah. see this. Now I can't wait for the documentary. Well, I know, but again, this I read this and it was just one of those moments in the TV coverage where I, I didn't actually catch that and I kept hoping that that maybe we would uh would get a look at that again. We'll probably get a look at that in the highlights later today. We're recording this right after the stage. I mean, that's but, a whole nother conversation yeah, where like you don't have to watch an NFL football game and they put the NFL puts these amazing, they're like 15 minute. It's essentially the game without any breaks condensed down. So you could just watch that 15 minute video and you've got it. Cycling, they'll do highlight videos, but they're like, you ever notice like the first two minutes are like, this is the route. This is them waving to the crowd. It's like, show me the race. That's what I need to see right now. Like, the, and it's just like, well, that's the highlight video we cut together. That's all you're gonna get. And oftentimes it will leave out a ton of important stuff. Just like, Give me a 15 minute condensed, super condensed version of the race with like important things in it. I don't understand why that's so difficult. Wouldn't that be magical? And I mean, you see the sport that's not done this is baseball. And there's maybe two of the best baseball players of all time currently playing for the LA Angels. And I, I don't think I could 
if Mike Trout walked past me on the street, I could not point him out because the MLB's like delivery system is so poor that I just never see an Angels game or even a highlight clip. And, you know, there are other aspects of what was going on in the race today that just don't get touched on. Like the specialist press will talk about this. So within the cycling vertical, you're going to see a lot of coverage of the equipment used in the race. But one of the really remarkable aspects of this first week of the tour relative to past editions of the tour, and I want to give a shout out to a listener, Matt M. in Bozeman, Montana, who brought this up, reached out. But these riders have been on, they've been on time trial bikes, they've been on their regular race bikes. And then of course, when you ride on the cobbles, typically these teams are using an endurance bike or they're using some kind of special setup. They might have larger chain rings, padded bar tape. We saw Sagan and his team today all ran mechanical, it looked like. Which And I think that this is one of the very few instances of a mechanical group set being used in in the tour. Like, I can't really remember anybody for the past couple of years running a mechanical group and set. And they do that because the cobbles will turn off your DI2 because it thinks it's crashing. Right. It thinks you've crashed and it will... This happens to Seth Van Mark every year where he can't shift because his DI2 turns off. So, yeah. Yeah, ex- exactly. So... Th- there's, but behind the scenes, you know, there's all this special preparation of equipment. And for all the bike manufacturers who are sponsoring this, the teams, I think this first week has afforded a really unique marketing opportunity. A lot of them have debuted new bikes. Giant has a new Propel. And as, as do a number of other teams, Trek has a new Madone. And Trek also has a new Amanda, although that was, I read today, that was the backup bike. They didn't actually race on on the Amanda, which is not an aero bike. It's more of an aero slash endurance bike. But now there's a whole technical equipment aspect of the race that I think is quite interesting and people really geek out on it that that doesn't really get touched on. So that's one aspect of the race that I thought was pretty interesting. Another thing that I think is really interesting about that is we didn't really see a lot of, we saw some mechanicals, we saw some flats today, but to my eye at least, the frequency of those mechanical incidents was far lower than we've seen throughout the season. I don't know if that jumped out at you, Spencer, but it did really strike me that we didn't, you know, relative to the classics, for example, where it seemed like every five miles or less somebody someone important was dropping a chain and it was having a significant impact on the outcome of the race the equipment seemed to work today yeah whatever's happened with the chain situation seems to have been resolved i don't know if they went back to 11 speed um 12 speed was causing some issues i guess it's also just a really different race like it's on the same roads as pay roubaix but i think the intensity is a lot lower i mean just look at the average speed on those cobblestones, I mean, maybe it's because it's a shorter race. The speed's actually roughly the same. But, I mean, think. There was something like, I don't know, let's say 45 riders that started the race today that raced Paris-Roubaix. And Paris-Roubaix, it's 100%. You know, it's like all specialists. So the fact that it is non-specialists doing it probably makes the fight for position less, which means you can see the cobblestones better. You're more likely to, like, go on a 
line where you're not going to flat. I think maybe it's perhaps just the classics are so crazy and so intense and such a fight from kilometer zero that you get more flats and and like mechanicals that way. I would love to know like with F1 like you're never you always know what tires are on. Like you just go on the app or even the the TV will tell you. You know, I would love to know like are, were they running tubeless? Were they running tubulars? Yeah, what what exact technology were they running that allowed them not to flat like this and what were they running in the classics? You know, you can go hunt that down. I'm probably not going to do it, you know. It's a lot of just like rumors online. Um, I, yeah, I don't know why that's not like packaged and delivered to us in a better manner. It seems like a huge missed opportunity. Yeah, no, I agree. You're right. You, you have to go dig around if you want to understand what equipment is being used. And with tires in particular, there's a lot of obfuscation because many teams, not many, but some teams aren't actually writing sponsor correct tires they're writing equipment from other manufacturers they're writing relabeled equipment and you know they they need to have whatever is going to actually work to get them through the stage yeah like i would almost guarantee that pagachar is not on his pirelli tires today i bet he was on some type of custom made sew up tubular tire um you know but i don't know yeah i it's unclear to me how effective tubeless tires are on cobblestones because oftentimes it's, it's not totally clear who's riding tubeless and who's riding tubular. I mean, part of it's for the reason you're saying where I think Tade is supposed to be on like clincher Pirellis. There's no way he's riding that over the cobblestones though. He's probably riding something else. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would love to know. I wish, I wish it was like a little bit more transparent. Um, you had a bit of like a, I guess a rumor, I, I, but I can't wait to hear it from you about the Peloton, you know, came to France from Denmark. They flew on a plane. They didn't drive. Um, you're supposed to like, usually they just like charter like three Air France jets and everyone flies in that. Did you get like a tip that and you're not supposed to fly private. Like you're not supposed to take your own private accommodation. Um, I guess like Lance Armstrong owned a private jet when he was racing. He would always want to take it around to on the transfers and ASO. I believe it was ASO wouldn't let him. I don't think the UCI stepped in and told him he couldn't. Did you hear that uh, people were actually flying on a private jet this year? It's not clear to me that it's against the rules or if it's just frowned upon by AS ASO. Yeah, well, Spencer, first, I want to thank everybody who's reached out to Spencer at BTP Cycling on Twitter. I'm at Bonds at Hardway Pod, uh, who's reached out with feedback and in some instances with some inside information. So appreciate hearing from you all. In this instance, just thinking about the tour getting from Denmark to France to continue the race and, you know, the logistics of that, there were a number of articles written about it. There's no controversy here per se to look into, but I think the thing to consider given COVID conditions, because COVID is on the rise again in Europe, and I know that many people consider us to have entered an endemic phase of COVID. I'm also, Spencer, I'm cognizant we're about to get <laughs> slapped with the Spotify COVID yeah. sticker again. COVID is but I, yeah, I really it's think endemic in my home. I'm hiding in the podcast studio from it as we speak. Yeah. Spencer's actually double masked while we do this, joking, not joking. But I've seen a number of team directors, team owners 
talking about this in the press that, you know, these writers, in order to get to the finish, need to avoid becoming infected with COVID. I know we talked about it in our pre-race show and with the volume of fans that we're seeing turning out for the races, which is fantastic on the sides of the road. A lot of teams are talking about, hey, it's great. We love having the fans here equally. We really want people to keep their distance, you know, when interacting with riders prior to stages, when they're coming out of the team buses, for example, when Primoz Roglic comes out of the team bus to go on his run in the morning every morning, yeah, we which should we should also that. talk about. Yeah, we definitely should One talk about that. Things I've ever but <laughs> it's so odd. It's so odd. But hats off, Chapeau, Primoz. But what I'm getting at here is COVID is raging across Europe right now. These teams are doing everything that they can to maintain a bubble. And cycling is different than when the NBA had a bubble, for instance, or other sports. Yes, they have a bubble within their team, but then you're taking all of these individual teams, all of the support staff, and you're putting, from what I understand, I tried to get clarification on this. I'm going to keep researching it. I couldn't get tail numbers or dive too deep, but it sounds like the riders were all put on one Air France aircraft and then they were flown from Denmark to France. So you have to think, just think about the mathematics of that. Like you're putting the entire Peloton who you've tried to keep isolated from COVID, they've been masked. You're putting them on one airplane and you're flying them from Denmark to France. I apologize if you hear some background noise. That's my dog, Dusty, and she's outraged to hear me talk <laughs> about this. But so like, that's one thing to consider is just like the COVID risk level and what that might actually do to the outcome of the race. And the other thing to consider, and again, I wanna thank Matt M from Bozeman, Montana, who reached out with, with this thought, what if that plane goes down? And I know that that's really morbid to think about, but we're talking about the entirety of the world's top cycling talent or on one plane at the biggest race in the world. And, you know, not to go too far down this road, but cycling is, is very unique among professional sports in that fans are actually on the field of play. So there's a very high level of risk that exists there that just doesn't exist in other sports fans can reach out and touch their heroes. And we, I think we've been really lucky um, that that has gone relatively okay. We, of course, have seen incidents where people taking selfies or what have you have gotten in the way and resulted in crashes. Same thing when we talk about a plane full of the entire Peloton of the Tour de France. I just don't know that that makes sense to have everyone on one plane flying from Denmark to France. And the other question that I have is you have to think that the sponsors of these teams have their own private transportation. And why would you limit these teams from transporting their own riders? And I understand it might be more convenient to just put everybody on one plane and fly them, but we're looking into the, the rules to try to understand this better, but why would you not just let the teams transport their own riders if they desired to do so and had the means to I do mean, so? I mean, I just don't think there's, a, I think me, you maybe are overestimating the relationship between sponsors and teams. Like I know a lot of teams are worried about gas, like 
they're, they're like worried about being able to afford driving around France with elevated petrol prices. So I just don't think anyone other than Enios could really shell out for a private jet for the riders. You don't. Sorry, I, I have to hit pause here. You don't think UAE could? I don't shell think. Out to... I think the the country of UAE could, but they just get a lump sum from from their their paying agent every year, and they have to stay within that. I mean, look, they're not like UAE is not that splashy of a team. Like their bikes are not particularly nice. They have some nice riders. They have Mr. Mr. Tade is pretty good, but that's not a I don't think they're like drowning in cash. And if they took a private jet, that would probably blow up their budget for for the tour. I mean, I think they're like a $25 million, 25 million euro a year budget. Probably 85% of that goes to rider salaries. It doesn't leave a ton of money left over to like book a jet. But I, I I do wonder, there might, I don't think ASO lets you do it because Ineos would just be flying their riders around if they could, if they were allowed to. Yeah. And yeah. And that all might be the case. I just, I want to throw out, and I'm sure you're aware of this, Spencer, but the reason that the UA team are on the Colnago bikes and we could talk about their technical or aerodynamic merits, it's because they're owned by Chimera Investments and that's an investment fund that's based in UAE. So that's why they're on the Colnago bikes. Uh, I, I think that that all is true. And I'm also thinking about within the context of all of professional sport. And I know we kind of like keep circling back on this today, whether it's the way the sport is mediated and streamed, the way the riders are transported. I also, you know, whether it's today or on a future edition, I also would like to talk a bit more about road furniture and some of the technical measures that we've seen this year to help riders navigate that a bit more safely. I don't know if you noticed that, but in Denmark, they had elevated signs that were animated above some of the road furniture so that wherever you were in the pack, ostensibly you could, if you glanced up, you could see that there was a sign telling you rather than just having a police officer there blowing a whistle or riders just kind of like waving their hand around like they're out on a group yeah, ride. Which I like. I really like that because I feel like oftentimes the conversation around road furniture is like, why can't they just rip it out? It's like they're not ripping out expensive infrastructure no, out the road that helps traffic. No. So, yeah, you just have to figure out a way to like sign it to the riders more effectively. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the areas where there could be some some innovation. I thought those signs in Denmark were a positive step. I didn't see any of those on the ride today. And so I don't know if, if that's something we're going to see more of now that we're back in France. I think that there are probably, you know, the logistics of the Tour de France are incredibly complex. There are probably hundreds of thousands of pieces of road furniture. And if not road furniture, then you have situations such as today where there's a hay bale, a a moto inadvertently hits it and that it has this outcome uh, that pretty seriously impacts the outcome of the race. So that happens all the time. But I wonder if there are lower tech ways that we could flag road furniture. This is perhaps overly reductive, but I've often wondered if you could simply have a large balloon that was somehow anchored to road furniture and so that wherever you are in the pack, you could see it. Because so many times we've seen riders flying along at 30, 40 miles an hour 
the pack splits and then they go flying into a post and they're out of action for three, four months. And, you know, whether I, we're all over the place right now, but I'm thinking about writer safety, the way writers are treated. I know that they've attempted to unionize and it's proven to not be possible thus far for a variety of reasons, but the more cycling becomes professionalized, I think the greater its power as a media property, the higher the return it will will create for the race owners, for the team owners, and for the riders. And I know that there are pretty serious and entrenched obstacles to that happening right now. And I think the change is coming and I think it needs to come and that these riders both deserve to be and need to be uh, working under conditions more on par with what we see in other professional sports. So while I understand the sponsors might not have, not might not, they don't have the budgets. Or the teams don't have the budgets, the sponsors have the budgets, yeah. Right. Sponsors have the budgets, the teams don't have unlimited money. I understand that equally, I think that much more could be done to create safer conditions and to create a more visually compelling product to sell to the world. Well, the problem is there's one family that runs cycling, the Amory family who owns the Tour de France and like any money they don't spend at the tour just goes right back to their dividend for themselves. So, you know, if you pitch them on a big balloon, they'd say, well, we could not do that. And then we just keep all the money instead of doing that. So at the, at the moment, that's kind of the obstacle that it's just one family running the business, running the whole sport. And so any, anywhere they can, they can cut costs goes back to them, which is why there was probably a, if there's a single plane with the entire Peloton, it's because they didn't want to book more planes. I mean, the smarter thing to do would be like to book 10 planes. So your risk is not correlated on one plane, especially during COVID. That's crazy if they did that. So, and this is not like, I don't think this family like love, I, I don't think the heirs have like a love for cycling. I think they're just like, yeah, this is like free money every year. We just get this awesome dividend. So I, I don't think nothing would change in the current structure. They would have to be pushed out or bought out or something like that for the sport to be modernized. Yeah. So let's move in a slightly different direction here, Spencer. So the stage ends. I saw Pojakar cooling down on his trainer. He looked like he, you know, were he Primoz Roglic, uh, like he just jogged a 10K. He looked very relaxed. Wow came up, kind of, you know, they did a fist bump. After each stage, is Pojakar frozen in carbonite like Han Solo? Is he just like parked until the next, the start of the next stage? Is UAE creating any media that I, I don't know? I'm just like, I'm not seeing anything coming out. I'm well, not I think people are really interviews. mean to him. So if you remember like that first tour that he won, he was like, what's the opposite of beloved, but hated. And like, even like Tom Dumoulin, which I thought was really out of line, like Tom Dumoulin coming out and being like, he rides a bike, like a, like a farmer or something, basically saying this guy's doped, which made it open season to, for, I don't know. I think people who should know better to just to like really be, it was, he was not, he didn't have a warm reception. So I don't think he's feeling like he needs to like get out there in front of the public. That, that would be my theory. That's a strong theory. 
is that sustainable for someone at this level of the sport with the level of influence that they probably have to not to, to not be a personality to well, not we be, also have any English is not persona. his first language. I mean, maybe it's different. And if you're in Slovenia, maybe he's like a, maybe he's on all the late night TV shows and stuff. It's always a little hard I, watching. I, I, I did a bit of due diligence here though. Like his English is quite good. Like I've seen him do a number of interviews and he has, he has strong English. It's always weird when it's not your market though. Like think of yeah, how many U.S. athletes are like hamming it up in foreign media markets it doesn't and even think of like Nikola Jokic is two-time MVP in the NBA I feel like he's almost roundly hated by the league and the fans so there's just like it's hard to like penetrate a market outside of your own and be like a darling in it I, I that's what I would guess is what's going on there the yeah the aspect of Tade that seems to be getting the most coverage in this tour other than write-ups about his uh his prowess as a cyclist it's all about his hair it's absurd what is going on i suspect his girlfriend came out and said no this is not intentional i don't know if they're telling the truth about this how could this be happening it's like his tufts his tufts are bigger than they were last year what what's going on there I, yeah i don't know do you have any inside like info on this <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, but I, I mean, I do wonder if, if he is, you know, if, if people have this perception of him in a potentially negative light, and that seems to be, you know, as you said, he had not the warmest reception after he, you know, just rode by feel and didn't record his power on the, during the time trial when he absolutely destroyed Primoz Roglic and, and won the tour. I think that that you're right. That probably was the beginning of there being some, um, some speculation about his performance. I wonder if now we're seeing the tufts of hair campaign. I wonder if this is an orchestrated campaign to solve. I honestly don't think that that's a crazy idea is it's definitely slowing him down. He's eating a lot of wind with those tufts sticking out of his helmet. It's, I mean, it's on par with Garrett Thomas's vest. So, I mean, the thing that I'm thinking about right now, we just, of course, had the 4th of July here in the United States. I'm thinking about around 4th of July, 2021, which is when Mark Zuckerberg seemed to really start to rebrand himself. That was the date that he had the post of, and I just saw this in the press, but I'm sure many of you remember the image of Mark Zuckerberg on the foil, like remote oh control. I'm, I'm still not in a good American place about flag. this. That guy, it, yeah, I think the I, board got yeah. broken when he came ashore and the locals just trashed that board. I, I think he bought the island. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, is this what we're seeing? Is this uh, tuft washing? Are we seeing tuft washing happen with well, Tade? So, so Tade, the, the decision, the power decision, I feel like was not good. I would not have advised him to do that. He was just posting his power the first nine stages of that 2020 tour super interesting you could just go into strava and see his power vanderpool currently does that questions start getting asked power gets pulled down it's completely a different tone between his team and the media yeah and then we have the weird he didn't ride with the power meter for the final time trial i don't know maybe that's true maybe it's not but i don't know it'd be cool if they recorded it and showed it to us you'd think that 
that just under the assumption he's not cheating, wouldn't you want to do that? Just let people... Does anyone really ask questions about Vanderpool? Because we can just dig into his power as much as we want. There's not really any mystery there about what he's doing and his form over time. But is, is like, is Wout doing... Are there like specific things you think Wout is doing publicly that Tade's not that you would like to see him doing? Sadly, I think the most we know about these writers besides their performances in the races and their power data uh, has to do with their hair. I mean, Wout has the best hair in the Peloton, right? So you're not smiling, Spencer, but you know it's true. I mean, it's, um, it's actually but, to the you point know, where I wonder if there's something going on here as far as I, I don't want to throw around accusations that are going to get me in trouble, but doping perhaps has there been a transplant is that a wig what's happening there that hair is too perfect yeah it's incredible I, i'm just um, looking up pagachar's instagram followers versus wouts really quick loading loading and then i have a trivia question for you yeah so they're about the same on instagram okay. interesting so do you know yeah. who like the most followed i think it's the most followed cyclist in the world on instagram i know it's the most followed colombian cyclist it's rigoberto uran which is kind of interesting because he's somewhat anonymous as far as racing goes but apparently is like a darling of like the colombian media and public so it's hard for me to point to like specific things he's doing that Tade is not though. That's where I get like the deliverables get a little fuzzy for me. Like what would Tade be doing that would help us understand him more other than releasing his power, which would probably go a long ways. Yeah. And coverage of races has completely changed in some ways for the better during and now during COVID and now is running, entering a new phase of COVID. There's never the media scrum and even prior to that, we really saw media and teams transition away from from doing post-race press conferences. Twitter just kind of obviated the need for that. So writers and teams prefer to go directly to the public. But it does really strike me, and I understand maybe the U.S. isn't a target market for the UAE team, but equally you have the very best athlete in the sport of professional cycling. And it's just like, it's an utter mystery, but you know, the performance is always the paramount thing in the world of professional cycling and all sports is also entertainment. And I think that it enhances the, the power of athletes and of the sport when entertainment is also part of the equation, not just sporting performance, but like, do you no, want him to do like choice. a grease video, like a la Sagan? Well, he did. He he did actually do a grease like video. Um, I don't know if you saw oh, this, rap. but he released yeah, yeah. a rap. He released a rap video this week. So that's like the big thing for these writers. And then Wout did the video that dropped this week. And the theme of the video is Wout can do anything, and it was him. You know, did yeah, that, that was a fun. lot of support. Support. The, the, here's the. Yeah, it was a. It was a the real dark hoot, truth, you know? or the, the dark potential truth here that could be unsatisfying for you, and for many is per, there's a chance that someone who can perform feats that like I almost wanted to write a poem yesterday after watching Wout ride away for the win, 
I was just like so moved. And I was like, this might be the fittest person I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen anything like this. There's, it does, there's no guarantee there's like an interesting person behind that performance that would be engaging or that you would have anything in common with. Like, I would guess Quinn Simmons and I probably don't agree on anything. And he's an awesome bike racer. Do I need more Quinn Simmons in my life? Probably not. You know, it's, it's not always a guarantee that there's like a media darling hiding behind these performances. And I'm not, I, I don't think that these athletes need to be media darlings. And I'm thinking also of Charles Barkley's thoughts on the roles of athletes and athletes as public figures. But I would like to hear a little bit from these athletes about their performances. And I mean, you brought up the example of Wout and we are getting interviews with Wout following almost every stage. Personally, I find them to be interesting and they do provide some insight about his thoughts on what happened in the race, what was going on. And I don't know if it's what the reasons are, but we're not getting any of that from Tade. And I might just have to, you know, just keep I mean, he's doing, well, because he's not in the yellow, when he's in the yellow jersey, he'll have to do those interviews. But, you know, maybe he's just not, I mean, while it's also almost like five years older, so maybe he's just better at communicating things better than Tade. But I, I think like Jamie Tard and, and Ted Lasso might be more of an accurate representation of professional athletes than people want to believe. You know, <laughs> there might not always be a deep pond beneath the surface is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, there might not. That could be the case, Spencer, and that's fine. Yeah, and I'm not saying, I don't know, Ted. I mean, he could be awesome. Like, he could be like, you want to go out on the lash with the guy, and he's like, there's no one more fun. But I don't know either way, but just there's no guarantee that. But often, I mean, how many cyclists break through the, to the mainstream? I mean, Julian Alaphilippe is so good, so talented. I don't know, pretty handsome guy. Like, if you went to just go to, like, a generic European city, go to Cologne, walk around and ask people if they know who he is. I bet they don't. You know, I think Peter Sagan's one of the only breakthrough, only cyclists to break through the mainstream, like in recent years. So there is definitely something where cycling's not connecting with the mainstream public. So you're correct in that sense. Well, I don't even think it's the mainstream public. I think it also is for people who are pretty hardcore fans. And to take that Philippe example, I don't love all of the content that the Quick Step team puts out, but some of it is really exceptional. And if you go check out their YouTube channel, part of what I've picked up from watching their videos is that Alaphilippe has a lot of emotion about what he's doing, and he seems to care deeply about his teammates. I know, you know, I'm watching videos that the team is making and editing, so... No, he's a, I think he's an objectively interesting guy, whether some of it sometimes feels like he's over emoting or like, I don't know, but he just, he does seem like a, he's genuinely, he genuinely loves cycling. He loves competing. Like he's, he's bought into the team culture. I I don't think you're off base there buying that. Yeah. But I, I find those videos to be really interesting and yeah, but you're right. There are a lot of different approaches. Not every writer feel super comfortable getting in front of a microphone. I can think of 
some, you know, we don't need to name names here, but I can think of some American writers who were at the very top of the sport and just always seem to be incredibly uncomfortable. Oh my God. Uh, oh, every time. Wow. Yeah. Like yeah. there's the talk about like all time weird professional athletes. Some of those very good American cyclists you might not actually want to hear from. <laughs> I don't feel, feel bad. Yeah, which is, that, but some strange rangers well, for I mean, sure. Hey, that's fine. Everybody has their gifts, right? And you're you're correct. Not everyone's gift is speaking to the media or being in front of the camera. Speaking of Americans, I, we we have not mentioned this. Nielsen Palace almost won the stage. Uh, great young American rider almost took yellow. Probably should have taken yellow, if not for Wout's insane ride to single handedly pull back the gap. Did you think Nielsen had it when he attacked, and did you think that was the right move? It was definitely the right move. I felt it was the only card he had to play. And, you know, had he won, it would have seemed like a brilliant move. The fact that it didn't stick, I think he knew that he was going to get completely smoked in the sprint. And we didn't talk about this. I want to hear your take on Nielsen Palace. But in that sprint, Taco Vanderhorn being on 32-centimeter bars and having no leverage Oh, it definitely played definitely played a role. First of all, yeah, you're right. Nielsen played the only card he had. That's that's all he could have done. Um, yeah, I guess it showed us how hard the stage was. I mean, th- I feel like he could barely make it to the finish line. And then Bosenhagen, who's really a strong rider, I was like, well, he's he's gonna like eat his lunch here, and he could barely make it to the finish line too. Um, Taco, who he did, he won a stage of the Giro last year. Good rider. I think definitely wins that stage if he has normal sized bars. I don't, maybe the calculation is he's saving so much energy because they're so aero that it makes up for losing a bike throw. But yeah, I, I definitely, that, that was the difference. And what's, I don't remember bike throws happening this much. Like, I feel like they happen every other stage now. It used to be like a treat. You'd be like, ooh, a bike throw. That's like once in a, once every half a year type thing. Now it's like, a lot of stages are decided by him. I don't know if you noticed this, Spencer, but right before Taco sat down in the sprint, because there was a moment when it appeared that he had run out of gas and he goes back onto the saddle really close to the finish line right before the bike throw. But it looked like his wheel slid out. I don't know what happened. I don't know if there was an imperfection in the road or what the deal was, but his wheel slipped out and went sideways. And in addition to having those tiny bars that he, there's no way he, he just didn't have enough leverage. I don't think to, to put out the Watts that he could have with a few more centimeters, but something happened with his wheel in that sprint right before the bike. And it's possible that, you know, he's maybe riding really low pressure for the cobblestones or, you know, going back to our tubeless thing, I, I'd be interested to know where they on tubeless. You know, maybe he flatted actually during the race and it sealed up and he's just on lower pressure than he normally would have been. Um, also, like, shout out to Intermarche, who is just like consistently. Wait, yeah, he's on Intermarche, right? I don't want to give him the wrong team. I don't want to call it the wrong team. Yeah, Intermarche, like, Christoph was supposed to be their like superstar that they brought in. And then they're just like getting results with like, I mean, Taco is a great, great name and a great rider, but just pretty random, some random riders, like replacement level, you might call them. And they just seem to be able to get results 
out of all of these guys. Um, I did think it was weird that Bosenhagen sat up. And if you look back, he lost, he's sitting a second behind Palace in the GC. So if Wow wouldn't have pulled them back, he would have lost the jersey by a second because he sat up at the end. It's, I didn't, perhaps he didn't know how close they were, but I was just like thinking, oh man, like Edward Bosenhagen just threw this yellow jersey away. What was he thinking? But maybe all of this just goes to like, the stage was so hard, especially from the breakaway, that those guys like had no idea what was going on by the end and were making mistakes left and right. Yeah, I'm wondering if he cramped or something happened. Yeah. The resulted in him just sitting up. Maybe you have to think the tank was empty at that point. And then Simon Clark at 35 gets, prob- I'm just looking at his wins, probably the biggest win of his career, which is pretty, pretty impressive. Only seven wins in his total career, in his career total. And then just wins a Tour de France stage on a team that's the opposite of Intermarche. Can't get results with anybody this year. I would say a poorly constructed team. And then they get a Tour de France stage. So pretty, pretty impressive from that guy. It was incredible. A lot of emotion in that victory yeah. as well. Um, yeah, that was and that was intense. Um, and I didn't know he was like crying after the stage. I didn't know if he'd won or lost or like what was going on. Maybe he didn't know either. <laughs> it was just that I do wonder, like, you know, obviously that's an emotional win, which probably shows to like, you, you show emotion more when you're completely drained physically. Just that stage must have been so hard for everyone involved. Like what's, you know, what's the implication or what what's like the effect of this later down the line? Like tomorrow will probably be a breakaway day because it's so long and everyone's so tired, but we're into the mountains on Friday or we have a mountaintop finish, tough stage on Sunday. Like this could start to be like, you know, a loosening of the foundation for a lot of riders would, would be my guess. So what are you thinking about tomorrow? I'm looking at the course it's profile. unbelievably long. It's 200. I mean, it's it, you, the stages used to be the song 220 K. It's the longest stage of the race. Hilly finishes uphill I, after today. Who's going to want to control that stage? I can't imagine Yumbo's champing at the bit to nail back moves uh, to like hold the gap. I think breakaway. And then Friday is, and you have Friday coming up, which is a big GC day. So I don't think we're going to see anything crazy tomorrow. But in that breakaway tomorrow, do you think we're going to see a bunch of randoms trying to grab TV no, time? No. Or is this like when Mohoric I goes think, for yeah, it? This, this is Mohoric. You know, he won the two longest stages of last year's tour. The Giro stage he won was the longest stage of that Giro. This has got Motorich written all over it. I won't say too much. I actually have to go record my preview podcast with Johan Bruniel in like 30 minutes. So I should probably log off and, and get ready for that. But the, a, fr- a free little nugget is uh, Mohoric is, this is right up his alley. And it's not going to be randos in that move. I mean, this is going to be a serious, if you remember like state, I don't think it's going to be as exciting GC wise, but stage seven of last year's race was like maybe the strongest breakaway I've ever seen in a Tour de France stage. It's going to be high, high, high caliber breakaway. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, Spencer. Thanks everybody for listening. You can follow Spencer on Twitter at BTP Cycling. You can follow me at Vance 
at Hardway Pod, and you can check out my podcast, Choose the Hard Way, on all listening platforms. And I'm looking forward to catching up again. Yeah, I think we'll be back after the when, summit finish on Friday. Up. It should be some exciting yeah. stuff to talk about. And thank you, everyone, for if you've made it to this point, you'd love us. I mean, we were in the weeds. We were in those weeds. We've got <laughs> ticks all over our legs, but I had a good time. I hope the listeners enjoyed it. And thanks, Andrew, for, for uh, taking the time to do this. Yeah, thanks, right, Spencer. Take care.